0: Last Supper are dialogues about the fascinating world of the arts in Asia, featuring artists, collectors and gallerists. Hello, I'm Oscar Van Huis, a Dutch Korean artist based on Lama Island in Hong Kong. In this episode, I talk with art lawyer Lawrence Kasterlein about legal protection including copyrights and provenance. We also discuss the role and differences of arbitration and mediation in the art world. Welcome, uh, Lawrence Castellan. I think it's one of the hardest names for any foreigner to, to pronounce.
1: <laughs> That's true. Yeah, a lot of people say Kastelegin or, or any derivation of it. Um, but it
0: is Kastelein. Yes, it is. Uh, so how do people, because you went to China, how do people pronounce your last name in Chinese? Well, when
1: I was in China, of course, I used my Chinese name, which is Gao Shulin. Uh, so I was Mr. Gao. Um, which is quite funny because Gao means of course tall and I'm, I'm actually quite short so uh, there was a, I, I always liked that one So I actually come from a family of both lawyers, uh, businessmen on the one side and the other side is more of the creative types my, my grandfather was an artist so he was making art for about 50 years so I grew up in his um, in his, basically in his workshop, in his, uh, his uh, atelier, so to say, to, uh, to, to, to watch him make art. So I was always intrigued by that, that, that side. Um, having studied corporate law, uh, however, is something completely different, of course. Um, and I was supposed to start at a big law firm here in Holland after studying that in Amsterdam. But then I decided, okay, no, I want to do something different. I want to go to Hong Kong. So I bought myself a one-way uh, uh, ticket to, to Hong Kong.
0: Why, why in Hong Kong?
1: Well, so my father was born in Hong Kong. That, that's more of the, the, the lawyer and the business side. So my, gra- my other grandfather was uh, uh, based in Hong Kong for a long, long time. Back in
0: the 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s. So you finished your studies and then um, somehow ended up In Hong Kong with some kind of plan or you just thought, well, I've I've got a backpack and let's just go. Actually, yeah.
1: So uh, no plan whatsoever. Just that I I always loved Hong Kong. I visited as a kid a couple of times and then I I just wanted to make something out of myself and to discover, uh, I think, the world uh, a a bit more than just starting a job in uh, where I grew up. And Hong Kong always intrigued me, just by the the, 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 the the attitude of the people of the of the city itself. So
0: Yeah, just really go for it and, and make something of yourself. That that I really uh, intrigued me. So when was that? When did he actually arrived in Hong Kong?
1: Yeah, that was in two thousand and eight. Yeah. Um, so right before the financial crisis, um, and that prompted me actually to. Um, lose my job in about a year's time because of the financial crisis. And then everybody told me, all my friends in Hong Kong uh, told me, Lawrence, what you need to do is to study Chinese, because when this financial crisis passes in about a half a year or a year, that's what people said in 2008, um, you can come back to Hong Kong and you can speak fluent Chinese. uh, So and that you can get the most beautiful jobs and, and, you know, it will further your career. So I thought, okay, that's a great idea, actually. So I wanted to go to either Beijing or to uh, Taipei, uh, just because of the accent that is spoken there. The Chinese accent is apparently uh, the, the best way to learn it, the most pure way to learn it. That's what people told me, at least. And um, so I didn't know which, which city to go. Both really uh, appealed to me. So I flipped the coin. And uh, luck uh, brought me to, to Beijing, basically. That's it.
0: Was that when you actually started working for a gallery?
1: So when I arrived in Beijing, I studied at Tsinghua University. Uh, and I, I took a job after that with a, a local organization. Um, after two years in Beijing, I, I wanted to, to have another change. So I went to Shanghai. And I took up job there with a, a Dutch firm. And after a year or so, I decided to go work for a gallery, uh, on, a, on a weekend job, basically just a volunteer sales position. And it just stuck. Um, I just loved it so much. I just, I just thought, okay, this is something that I really want to be part of this, this, this art world. So I started at the very bottom of the art world, just really being a, you know, a sales hand, so to say, and, and helping lifting artworks, rep- packing it, creating it, uh, hanging it, lighting, everything, creating sales, um, you know, inventory lists and whatnot and everything down to actually artists, uh, um, helping artists setting up the whole show. So I really love that. And and basically after a year or so, uh, in another gallery um, uh, asked me to set up their or, or expand their Hong Kong operations, which was Island Six. So Island Six, Leo Dao um, had an, uh, a gallery in New Street in um, in Hong Kong, and uh, they asked me to basically extend it a little bit and expand and 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 build it out. So that I did. This was around 2012, 2013, and at that time, actually. Uh, it kind of came to me that I wanted to be more involved in the legal aspect of the art world as well, because a lot of galleries, mostly in in Hong Kong, were asking me these questions. They said, Lawrence, you're a lawyer, right? So how about this copyright issue? Or how about this contract? How, how do I do this? How do I do that? So I decided to kind of merge the two worlds, the legal and the artistic world, and to start my own company called Art Law Services. So we, uh, the inception was in 2013, and now in 2020, we opened up our new office in, in Amsterdam, and, uh, and and going strong ever since.
0: During that period, I met you as well. Um, at yeah. One of the many gallery opening events, which was then very rife. I mean, I remember there was every day there was just several, several yeah. openings in, in Hong Kong. Yeah. Um,
1: what struck me a lot, Oscar, was that, you know, I was with Island Six, of course. And Island Six only sells artworks of their own. So we don't deal in any other art uh, artists, making us quite unique in the, the whole gallery uh, world in, in Hong Kong. Um, and we were quite happily invited to other shows, openings, because, you know, it, we didn't compete with other galleries, so to say. So uh, that, that was quite a special position that, that we were in.
0: So talking about sort of the, uh, the, the legal experience that you have, right? So you, when you arrived here in Hong Kong, you mentioned you want to get more involved in this. Was that something that was easy? I mean, because you have a, a, a corporate background, right? Um, so I'm definitely not a lawyer. Um, I have, I don't have the experience. So I just wonder um, whether that was even possible in terms of pra- practical terms to focus on, on art law. Yeah.
1: I think a lot of, maybe your artist listeners to this podcast are are thinking that art law only is about copyright law, Um, but maybe your collector listeners or or gallerist listeners are, are, uh, they actually know that a lot of issues in the art world are mostly contractual, meaning that there is a, a relationship between either buyer or seller or an artist or gallery or whatever, that is, the, the relationship is put on paper in a contract or agreement. And then later on, there will be issues about this, what is actually meant. So what does the, the buyer mean or the seller or the artist or the galleries mean? So that's always very interesting. So I think there's where my corporate law and uh, education comes in quite nicely.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, let's let's go a bit, little bit deeper in that because uh, for me, with the starting with the basics at least from what I know is is the copyright, right? Because yeah. there seems to be a lot of confusion about this, especially if I think from well from all kinds of different uh, angles, whether you're a collector or a gallerist or a creator yeah. itself. So ma- let's maybe start with what it actually is.
1: Yeah. So. Very basically, a copyright is a fundamental legal right that is possessed by the authors of creative works. That means that it does not protect any ideas, but only the expression or the product of that idea. Uh, so if you have an idea in your head, and you know maybe it's genius, but this is just in your head, so it's not written down or anything, therefore it is not protected by any copyright law. Now, if you write it down, it will be uh, the copyright will go to you as the one who writes it down, eh? who takes the skills and effort in, in actually putting it down to paper. Most uh, copyright laws around the world work like this: is that you don't have to register your idea; um, that it is actually the fact that you wrote it down. Uh, the, the first, eh? you're the first one to write it down then the copyright goes to you. So now. what you
0: mean by writing it down is as a, if I create it by default. An author, for example. Yeah,
1: if you, for example, write a novel, but of course also if you're an artist, uh, hey, you put your paint on, on the canvas, so to say.
0: Okay, so intrinsically, as soon as I create something, whether I'm a writer, mm-hmm. uh, I do theater, I do dance, or I, as an artist, that's... Yeah. Belongs to me, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. Right. There are uh, two uh, general exceptions to this rule, and that is basically when you do this for somebody else. Okay, so if you work, uh, we always have the, the 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 example as a as a journalist working for a newspaper. So the works that you put on, you know, write for the newspaper are actually owned by the newspaper uh, the employee uh, the employer sorry so the uh, the employer has the copyright
0: but now uh, yeah now go ahead the second uh, general
1: exception to that rule is that when people commission an artwork so i'm asking an artist to uh, draw my uh, my portrait so to say then the copyright goes automatically in most times uh, to the person who commissions the artwork.
0: Okay, because so that's quite interesting. But Because the first example, that's more of an employment agreement, right? And therefore, the employer uh, keeps the yeah. copyright. But yeah. even, even as a creator, I, I lose the copyright to the business
1: yeah. So if you, if for example, you're, you're talking about if you are uh, in, in uh, you're an employee, employer relationship, but also, of course, when you ask somebody to do something for you, that's also a, a form of employment. You, you, you have to put it down on paper as well. But this, it's basically the same legal idea that you do something uh, for somebody else, for a in, in a certain set of rules, basically.
0: Yeah, but so so the way I understand it, right? So is it fair to say if you ask me, Lawrence, to create something, you would own those copyrights? Because I make it, yeah. right? Yeah,
1: exactly. So I, I, uh, I will own uh, the copyright unless you as a maker, Oscar, will say, in the beginning before we even start this whole relationship you say no uh, i will give you an exclusive license to use what i create for you that's of course a different type of uh, legal flavor is the licensing
0: okay so uh yeah whether you're a gallerist or a a collector or an individual or institution it there's, there's no difference
1: yeah, well, in our practice, that we 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 regularly see that uh, artists come to us at Artlow Services to say, okay, can you review this contract? It's it's actually it's a uh, an agreement for me as an artist to make a portrait of somebody else or uh, you know commission an X amount of works. Uh, I don't want to give out all my copyright to. The buyer of these works, but I would like to license, uh, I give them the right to use uh, this work and any creative outlet out of this. But the actual copyright stays with me. Okay. So this happens quite a lot as well. But this is that's why it is important to to know a little bit about these kind of legal rules and also to put things on on paper, um, because otherwise it will go directly to the uh, to the person who commissions the work.
0: That's, that's, that's really interesting because I really thought by default if you don't write anything down, it the copyright belongs to the creator. So even if you ask me to create something, I thought it actually still be, belonged to me if I would not write anything down.
1: Yeah, but if I ask you uh, to make something for me, huh, then I will always put something down on paper Right, even if it's an email or on a napkin or on a on a post-it note or whatever, then it's still written down, so to say. If if it's talked about, if it's just verbally agreed upon, then it will be still be an agreement, a verbal agreement. Just the it's just difficult to prove what has been said, of course, unless it's been recorded, and then you can, you know, basically it's it's proof again.
0: Mm. And that's in general globally that people follow, I mean, how, how does copyright work? I mean, where did that actually, did that start in the US or you, where's copyright actually from? Well, Do you know
1: that? actually, the, the copyright is uh, through a whole application of a lot of conventions. And uh, these are international conventions. Maybe you've heard of the Berne Convention. You have uh, WIPO, which is the World Intellectual Property Organization. Uh, You have all these kind of copyright treaties where a lot of countries are part of these treaties, making it easy to set universal rules. Now, certain countries, of course, are not abiding by these rules, but Hong Kong, for example, is one of the countries where uh, they abide by the uh, WIPO rules uh, and therefore... Uh, the, 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 the copyright vests in the author automatically without having to have certain uh, uh, things put on paper.
0: What about mainland China? Or-
1: so mainland is a little bit diff- different. Well, for copyright, usually they are uh, following most of the rules. There is one big difference with, uh, with registration of trademarks. So in China, when you... Uh, they have the system called the first to register uh system in other words uh, if i am a big producer of let's say uh, um, no yeah glasses <laughs> i'm just gonna say a, a watch here and i i have a name for this watch called you know the, the watch company I, I i have that here in holland uh, i promote it worldwide and then somebody clever in china China thinks, hey, the watch company is going to be big. I'm going to register that name and uh, and and the logo in China itself, in mainland China, and then they registered it first. So that's kind of that's that's a problem for a lot of. Uh, used to be a big problem for a lot of big companies uh, abroad, mostly in Europe and in Asia in uh, North America, because they didn't know about these rules, and then they forgot to register locally. And then they had to purchase these uh, uh, names from the uh, person in China who owned it.
0: Hmm. So, yeah, let's stay with this copyright for, for a little bit longer. Um, so if you ask me as a creator to make something, you you own, own the copyright because you, are, uh, you asked me to make it. What happens, so I finish it and you sell it, yeah. so what happens with the copyright then so as the owner of the copyright you are allowed to do
1: everything with that so I'm I can sell the copyright on but I can also license it so meaning that I keep the copyright but I give out the license to somebody else to use that work so this is all done you can you can choose what you want to do but you have to put things on paper in contract
0: Okay. So is paper basically the default? What about a, a, a recording, a voice recording? It needs to be paper or, or is maybe I'm just pushing the, the, the boundaries of what? We're... No, 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 no. It's
1: a, it's a good question because a lot of people, especially with the smartphones nowadays and laptops and whatnot, you can just easily record it, right? We can just say something in a Zoom meeting, for example, and then you can use it as, a, as proof later on. The default is still the contract in on a paper in a, in a, in a in a document, so to say, that is signed, either uh, with ink, real ink, or a digital uh, signature. That's also uh, acceptable. Okay. But mind you, you can also just send an email to somebody, put a couple of sentences there, and saying, "Please respond with okay." Uh, I agree, and that's already a kind of a you know it's it's a, it's a simple way of reaching an agreement. So, what is an agreement? It's the offer and the acceptance of that offer. That's very basically in in all legal systems that that's an that's an agreement. So, you asked me to partake in this podcast, and I said yes, I would love to do that. So, we are in agreement.
0: Yeah. So then, if you resell it done it really you can basically renegotiate the copyrights
1: yeah but as an artist in the beginning as an author of a work uh if you sell it on in the beginning then you lose your copyright basically um an artist does have a a few of the moral rights stay with the artist uh, or the author so um there are generally three of these uh, moral rights that's the the first one is the right to be identified as the author yeah so uh, if you sell your painting and it's been sold sold, sold 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 there's still your signature on the on the painting for example and you still have the right to be named the the original uh artist so to say
0: but is that by uh, law i mean if people don't mention the author or creator can yeah. You, can you so, sue them.
1: yeah. Well, that's actually on the, the third moral right is the right against the false attribution of a work. So, if p- other people taking credit for your work, you have the right to to, to go against that, meaning also to sue. So that's the third one. And the second one is the right to object to the uh, derogatory treatment of this work, meaning that, for example, if you make an artwork and somebody changes something or cuts it or uh, uh, destroys it, then you can uh, uh, file claims against that. So this is, yeah, so these moral rights in most legal systems around the world are Always staying with the author of the work, of the artist, if we are using uh, artists in, in, in this example. So even if you sell your works, you sell your copyright, you sell all other rights to this artwork, you still have these more rights. They always stick to you as the original creator of that work.
0: Traditionally, the, the the agreement between a creator, uh, buyer, a collector, is that you s- sell um, uh, basically the entire work, including the copyrights, right? Whereas yeah. in the music industry, it's quite common to have commission. So, what's the reason why that doesn't really happen with, let's say, in painting, where I say if you resell this? Um, as a as a moral uh, uh, the moral right that you still have plus you actually get a commission on that. Well, it
1: it it, it is actually
0: in a, quite of a, a few countries do
1: have this system where if you uh, resell it's called resale rights. Uh, the, the artist or the the, the the owner of these these rights have the uh, can claim money f- from every time that your art, the the, the 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 artwork is being sold again, resold. But not all countries have this system. But most uh, most European countries have it. Uh, the UK has it, and the US has it as well. Um, I'm a bit unsure if if Hong Kong has it uh, at this point. Uh, I, I don't think they do. Um, but but th- there is there is a system in place to make sure that the the original uh, creator will be compensated for when your artworks are being well, in, it's kind of a derogatory term. It's called flipping, right? Artwork mm-hmm. flipping. So I mean, meaning buying it for. X amount and then selling it for X plus one, for example. Is
0: that sort of best practice now in the US and Europe? Do people, do they do it? Or is it sort of, it's a nice gesture, but in practice, it's a little bit different.
1: So how it works is that, for example, you have certain organization, if you take the example of of Holland, where you have an organization uh, and they keep Track of all the rights of these authors. So every time a um, a gallery or dealer sells an artwork from that particular artist, then they have to file that with this organization, to in order to get. Uh, uh, and they have to pay basically. They have to file for the uh, payment of these of these uh, resale rights. And this is, of course, on a yeah what they call an honor system, eh? because this big organization they cannot check every gallery, every uh, uh, transaction that is being done in the art world. But you know, mostly they're scouring the the, the auction sites and whatnot. So they have a, a little bit of an idea of of, of uh, what the volume is of these transactions and what the resale rights that they can claim from these dealers. Um, I think it's it's a, it's a good system, and um, uh, but it's not uh, it's not the the, the most uh, how to say it's 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 not the most important thing for a lot of dealers or, or collectors because they will pay premium prices anyhow for works, right? So uh, it's it's usually uh, these resale rights is about. Artists that are, are quite famous and, and quite uh, uh, have high prices.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you talk about, let's say, artists that have passed away, then it's, yeah. I guess, up to the foundation or charity to, to exactly. control that. Yeah.
1: The heirs or the or the foundations that are, are governing these
0: rights. That's right. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. So maybe, uh, is there anything else you want to add into the copyrights? Um, yeah so for example uh, these
1: copyrights they are calculated uh, uh, as the life of the author plus 50 years in Hong Kong uh, and it's also for 50 years from the first release of, of for example of a film or for photographs sound recordings and whatnot. Um, not and uh, can you extend
0: that after 50 years can you say hey I want to
1: no, do another no, 50 you, years no no, okay, no Oh. So, and that becomes after this period, it becomes public domain, and this is what you see with a lot of, for example, old masters, right? So, uh, for example, the the Night's Watch, uh Rembrandt work uh, um, in uh, in the Rijksmuseum here in Amsterdam. We uh, this is all these works are in the public domain.
0: So the other thing. Um... I want to talk about is actually the, um, which I think is a lot of confusion about is the provenance, right? Yeah. Um. And now, first of all, let's just start. Uh, what it actually is.
1: Yeah, so provenance, very basically, it's just the history of the ownership of a valued object or a work of art. So it's it basically it shows uh, who was the owner of these artworks, if we stay, stick with the, with the artworks in an example. But it can be of any valued object. Eh? It can be a car or a watch or a classic of a wine or whatnot. So, but if you stick to the artworks, you usually have a record of when it's been sold and for what price and to whom. So this is very interesting to have an idea of how old these artworks are, actually are or uh, uh, who owned it, and and of course also the, the 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 prices that have been paid. But mostly, it can be used as a, a to backtrack to how old the artwork actually is.
0: So when you talk about um, a record, so what's what what is a record? Do you need to write it down, or uh, what is typically the, the normal yeah. process? So,
1: for example, you can use, of course, invoices, right? So every time I, uh, you buy an artwork, you get an invoice from the person that you uh, buy it from. So that can that's the start of the provenance already. So every time you resell it, there, there are records, there are documents, there are whatnot. But you can also be, for example, famously it's it's uh, for Van Gogh, for example, the Dutch painter, um, you for the provenance it's used uh, the what it's being said in the letters sent from from Paris or from uh, south of France uh, back to his brother or his, his sister so uh, to his dealer so it's all kinds of uh, yeah proof uh, that uh, where the artwork has been um, and, and and who who sold it and who bought it and, and whatnot
0: hmm. so with, for example, I, I'm just going to sort of break it down, right? So for a, with a car, you have a unique serial, serial number, and then you have a, a warranty certificate. That, that number is registered with an organization. With yeah. a painting, I imagine it's a little bit different, right? Because uh, how do I know that the certificate is, belongs to that piece of artwork? Because all yeah. that artwork is so... I mean, if it's a copy, how do you know the difference, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. That, that is also uh, uh, quite difficult in some, uh, some instances. So usually what you have, when you have a uh, an, uh, certificate of authenticity, huh? uh, it's, it's basically a document that is proving that that actual painting is from that period done by this person and, and, and whatnot, and it's a real painting, an authentic painting, Uh, Oftentimes, nowadays, of course, it's done with uh, photographs uh, and uh, also because of the whole development of the blockchain, uh, a lot of new applications to register artworks are also in the making or already are uh, available. So for example you have this company in Taiwan that produces DNA stamping of, of artworks so they put a spot of DNA in the actual artwork so and and it's it's linked on the blockchain the information is set in the blockchain that this particular artwork is uh, is it's genuine and is is bought at that point so they they combine the provenance with the certificate of authenticity in a more digital way using the blockchain. Now, this is, of course, very interesting because uh, it seems to be creating a very sure way of saying, okay, this work is genuine and it's owned by this and this person. The provenance is there. But, of course, we cannot really do that with old art, so to say, especially when the artist already passed away, it's very difficult for us to uh, basically determine uh, the whole provenance and sometimes also the authenticity. So what you need are experts. So there are all around the world, there are experts who are experts in certain artists of certain styles, and they... Uh, use of course also technology with uh, x-ray and and whatnot uh, all kinds of uh, modern technology to look at these artworks to see if they're o- authentic or not take samples and and, and and all this kind of thing interestingly enough still the most important thing or the one of the most important thing is actually the eye uh, of the of the expert so even if all the technical data says, okay, this is is a real work, it's an authentic work by this artist done in this certain period of time, then still the expert can kind of overrule that and say, okay, no, uh, there is still something very fishy about this and I don't trust it. So, uh, I think that is very interesting even in this day and age where the experts are are very, uh, still very renowned. Hmm. Now, lots of times these experts, it it has been changing a little bit because the art world, the value or the the monetary value of of, of most artworks has been skyrocketing since the the, the end of the 80s, early 90s. And um, a lot of experts are now afraid that they're open for lawsuits, right? Because if they have... Kind of have the final say, and they say no, it's not a real Van Gogh, or it's not a real uh, Zawuki. Then you know they can be sued. So this is yeah, this is a very I think a bit of a sad way of of, 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 of the of the art world currently. But uh, that's that's how it is.
0: Well, it was so okay. You talk about the old masters, right? Old people that have passed away. Um, when we talk about living artists. Um, what what do from your experience what do you recommend how to kind of really make a pretty sound sort of provenance uh, to make sure no there is well because we live in a different period now and of course i understand when you have van gogh yeah. or rembrandt they weren't really thinking about that so much but now of course we yeah. have all kinds of different methods and techniques so yeah. wh- how how do tem- contemporary artists w- deal with this
1: yeah so just to answer your question on that, if I flip it, and um, because I'm all, I'm not an artist myself. Uh, uh, I'm a buyer. I'm a collector myself as well. So what I do is, whenever time, we, me and my wife, we buy a new artwork. We and the artist is still living. We always make sure that the artist actually signs the uh, certificate of authenticity. So later on, you can always prove with the signature on the actual painting and on the uh, certificate of authenticity that is the same signature that is not uh, that is the actual artist. And it says, where did we buy it for how much? And and, and when is the artwork being made? So this is very, uh, very, yeah, we think a very clear way of documenting the whole transaction. Now as an artist, what you can do is basically, well, provide that information to whoever buys your artwork. Uh, this can be done in a simple document. Uh, you don't have to have all these fancy digital uh, 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 yeah, digital things that I was mentioning before, uh, DNA and everything. You don't need that. You can just put it in a do- Word document and, 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 and give it to the, to the buyer.
0: Basically, it's if you have a signature, you have an invoice... Right. That's that's the second uh, thing. Um, do I you talked about documentation? Do you need to have a catalog or what, what would really strengthen sort of the authenticity of of that piece?
1: Yeah, yeah, catalog helps, of course, but usually catalogs are used by by artists to produce a lot of works eh? We have a vast body of work uh, throughout. Decades of of, of 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 making art. If you are a starting artists, uh, just take pictures, and you know, uh, and, and 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 even you can uh, 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 stamp the the information that you use that in the file as your JPEG or something. Uh, quite simple in that sense, and put it on, uh, put it in a word document. Say what is the material that you used? Uh, did you use a or did you use mixed media? Or what's the canvas size? Anything, any information that you have, you can use that in your certificate.
0: So, apart from the certificate, is that what about actually? Well, in this case, let's say just uh, let's talk about oil paintings or canvas, right? Because that's straightforward. Would you also recommend to have those details on the canvas itself? Not, of course, not on the front, but um, the what you would have in a certificate to verify that on the yeah. back yeah. of the canvas.
1: Yeah, yeah, I would definitely recommend doing that uh, in combination with your signature. So if you write it down, then people can always analyze your signature and your your handwriting to uh, to your other works and uh, and uh, prove your authenticity through that. Absolutely, yeah. Mm.
0: that also brings me to kind of a, as a nice introduction to kind of disputes right yeah because um i'm sure like in in any industry there are disputes and especially in the art world so what 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 do you see happening in terms of where are most of the disputes happening
1: yeah so first of all let me say that you know the art world is a very emotional world and Especially the last what twenty thirty years, the market has been exploding. So emotions and money is always a very di- yeah difficult combination or explosive combination. Uh, ask any uh, inheritance lawyer. Uh, you know it's always very tricky. Now this is especially with the art world when uh, either the artist or the buyer, for example, of an, of an artwork are not happy with what is being agreed upon. Huh? So for example, if you do a commission a piece as an artist, then maybe the buyer is not happy with the artwork and doesn't accept it, or all of a sudden wants to pay you uh, less uh, money for it, or maybe something went wrong during the transportation of the artwork, um, there can be so many things that can go wrong. Perhaps the uh, person who commissioned the artwork went bankrupt or doesn't have the money to pay you anymore. All of these things can, can of course, happen. So it is important to make kind of provisions before you start with these kind of uh, commission pieces to have Put everything on paper, and maybe ask for a down payment of fifty percent or more. Uh, uh, All these kind of uh, things uh, you need to 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 really keep uh, keep in mind. Now, especially when you have uh, 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 basic transactions between dealers, it's a very uh, it's more of a, a very commercial. Uh, commercial um, setting so meaning that they are yeah, they're businessmen so they, they want to have the best price possible uh, for certain things maybe the the, the 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 painting didn't arrive on time uh, or it became a public that uh, you know they they were selling the artworks a lot of times nowadays of course a big issue arose when uh, w- where China was involved is that A lot of time when you have a collector buying from a gallery uh, for contemporary work, you know, uh, um, primary market, then um, the buyer, the collector has to promise and also put on writing in the sales agreement that he's not allowed to resell the work within a certain period of time. This is to protect the gallery, but mostly protect the artist. Uh, so this is called uh, anti-art flipping, right? So art flipping is to, to resell the work uh, very quickly after you purchase it. Now a lot of times this is put in the the, the sales agreements, and lately a lot of buyers are just not really holding to to this agreement and just basically sell it anyhow within a couple of years already so this is of course very interesting to see uh, if for a lawyer at least of course if these clauses in these agreements in these sales agreements are actually uh, enforceable can you hold people to everything that you say in your agreement that's of course is, 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 uh, is quite uh, debatable um And uh, it's a very interesting discussion. So why is that
0: debatable if it's agreed in an agreement?
1: Because um, luckily the law says, and this is worldwide, it says that you are not able to do certain things, right? As a standard. So with certain things, it's quite clear. So you are not allowed to kill somebody, for example. Or you're not allowed to. We always use the example to hire a hitman to, you know, to have somebody killed. So this is quite clear. These are rules that are uh, that everybody accepts that this is not allowed. If I put on paper that I'm asking you uh, to to uh, to have somebody killed, then this agreement is what we call in the legal world void. It's it's it's, it's, it's it should not have been. Allowed, so therefore it does not exist. So, but certain the rest we can say you can put anything on paper, we can agree to anything. But if that's really the case, that's of course debatable because some things that you put on paper should not be allowed to be agreed upon and uh, is not fair. Because sometimes the, per- the, the, the 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 person who agrees to something that is put in an agreement uh, doesn't understand what is being said or ha- uh, didn't uh, yeah didn't didn't know that it was there even so it can be uh, uh, yeah basically be removed from the agreement l- uh, later on and this is what's being said with these clauses where a lot of these. Uh, galleries are putting this in the anti-flipping clause so to say and so it's and and now a lot of people are saying okay maybe this is not allowed anymore should not be allowed anymore or uh, this is not fair because I'm allowed to do whatever I want with my painting as soon as I buy it so you cannot hold me to this anti-flipping clause so that's uh but maybe it becomes a bit more too legally technical, but this is very interesting for us lawyers to 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 be dealing with
0: yeah so uh, yeah uh, th- that's yeah uh, that's really fascinating, so the other hypothetical scenario then is is so what what happens um now when talk about um disagreements and 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 uh disputes for example, if you have a a create an artist um that uh, works with a gallery to let's say uh, organize a show right and now of course like you had COVID right so what happens if the show doesn't go ahead or is delayed what 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 kind of disputes can you expect there
1: yeah absolutely Um, due to COVID of course a lot of events uh, were canceled and a lot of original plans that you were put on paper agreed upon uh could not uh could not uh, continue um usually it will fall under the category what we call act of god meaning that is something that is out of our hands then we cannot perform the agreement or certain aspects of the agreement because of those reasons and then the party that are needs to perform a certain aspect of that agreement uh, cannot be helped uh, to do so basically um, so this is quite common what we see that a lot of luckily uh, a lot of parties are able to reach an amicable Solution to certain issues because of COVID or whatnot. So uh, I think, and and of course, war as well as the same thing. Now we have, of course, a, a war going on in Europe. Is a lot of things cannot go through just because of that war. So that that will fall under the the the, the facet of the act of God.
0: Hmm. Let's say something is less a little bit less severe and it's not an act of good mm. or or a war <laughs> um yeah what's your experience in terms of if let's say an, an an artist is late right so they they need twenty pieces or let's say ten pieces or what or whatever the amount is the show is yeah. coming up and uh, there's actually only half of them is, is that yeah what happens then?
1: Well, usually the gallerist and, and the artist will, will know how to handle this because it's not the first time this would uh, would happen. I mean, in my experience, when I was working for galleries, we had this quite a bit. Uh, but if you're talking about, for example, uh, a shipping company uh, who has to ship the, the artworks from halfway around the world and it's not arriving on time in the gallery, uh, then... Uh, you can sue the, the shipping company for uh, that, that they that they didn't perform the agreement, so to say. Now with artists, it's a little bit different. different I feel like usually galleries are a bit more lenient than, for example, with shipping companies for the obvious reasons. Uh, so, yeah, but strictly legally speaking, of course, yeah, if you reach an agreement within with an artist to, to, to deliver certain artworks, and uh, he he doesn't he or she doesn't perform the artist, then uh, yeah, you can uh, you can take legal action. Yeah. Now, Oscar, you have to understand, of course, is that having the right to take legal action and actually the result of that legal action is, of course, very different. Uh, you can. Yes. you can say you have a legal right to sue somebody, but as we all know in Hong Kong, you know to start legal proceedings is, is in, incredibly expensive. And the small claims court is one thing, which is a nice, nice uh, little uh, way in, in Hong Kong to, to, to deal with small issues. But most of these issues are above the threshold of, of the small claim court. And therefore, you have to pay huge uh, legal fees and also court dues. So uh, this is uh, this is something that, is, of course, is uh, what we never advise to start legal proceedings in, in Hong Kong. Uh, we would actually advise to, for example, do arbitration, which is a more of a uh, also cost effective way of dealing with issues. Or when you don't want to do arbitration, you can always opt for, of course, um, for mediation. And mediation, of course, is a very interesting new development, especially in the art world, where two parties who are trying to find a solution to the issue. And this can be for a fraction of the price, for uh, for, uh, example, uh, arbitration or, or 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 going to court.
0: What is the difference between the arbitration and mediation? The
1: big difference is that mediation really has a mediator who is independent, who is above the parties, so to say, and who just wants to facilitate parties come to a an understanding. And, and that's what 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 mediation is really about. Arbitration is actually more of it's kind of going to court, but it's more of a private uh, uh, dispute resolution. Uh, of course, the courts are, are arranged by by, by country, so it's a public uh, public uh, public courts, right? Um, the Advantages of mediation and arbitration is usually that the person who is there, the, the professionals, know about the art market. So, for example, if you have a court of arbitration where you go to with your dispute, you know that the arbiters, so basically like the judges, they called arbiters, are uh, knowledgeable of these uh, of the art world. So that 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 is already a big step. And, and also a time and, and money saver for when you go to the public court where you have to explain everything to a judge which is quite problematic and I have experience in that where the judges just don't understand how the artboard works because it's still kind of a closed off uh, closed off uh, industry. It's unregulated it's one of the last big unregulated uh, markets in the world. Um, so in, in in the Hague in Holland we have now the first court of arbitration for art which also includes mediation so they have a specialized court of arbitration also mediators uh, for the uh, uh, for the art world and I'm, I'm proud to say that I'm actually an, an arbiter uh, on, at this court as well uh, so I'm, I'm there uh, as an expert so, so very uh, if you put it very uh, uh, simply that the uh, an arbitrator makes a judgment and uh, it's basically like a judge saying okay person a uh, or organization a uh, you are right and person b has to uh, pay person a so to say that's a judgment now as an uh, mediator, you are independent. You basically are just somebody who's trying to solve a, a bar fight eh? and comes in between the two parties. And says, "Hey guys, let's uh, let's not fight. Uh, what's the problem here?" Uh, it originated, of course, in, in mostly in the family law, like with divorces and, and uh, people who are in a heated discussion or argument, where you have to usually helps a lot when you take a step back and you know, let reason prevail.
0: Who do you actually, um, without actually promoting any particular artist, but uh, do you mind sharing who, who you actually and what you actually follow in the art world? Because I know you collect yourself. So what, what actually attracts you, is that particular style and why is that?
1: Yeah, so I, uh, I always had a passion for, for African art. Why is that? Um, I don't know. I just like it a lot. I like the the colorfulness of it. I like a lot of the uh, um, the, the the exoticness. I think they're being uh, quite exotic for somebody who comes from from Europe. And I I, I used to go to the one fifty four contemporary art African art fair in London, and I saw their... Uh, these yeah, young up-and-coming African artists from West Africa, like uh, Ghana. So this one artist is called Lord Ohene Kuma, who is a contemporary figurative portrait uh, painter from uh, uh, from uh, Ghana. Um, I thought his works are just fantastic. And it's it's quite raw. Um, it's maybe a little bit compared to the the, the, the scene the art scene in mainland China in, in the nineties, I guess, you know, and this is now of course, uh, African, uh, contemporary artists is, is really hot in the art world. Let's, let's, let's face it. Um, so this, this market is still very much developing, I think. So I think that that's quite interesting. On the other hand, of course, you have the NFT market, which is very interesting. And, I'm just interested to see where this is going. We know, of course, that uh, we, we don't know, sorry, we don't know that if NFTs are here to stay and it would, would, will hold its value. Uh, but we do know that the blockchain so the whole idea behind you know, the technology facilitating nfts are uh, are here to stay and that they will change our world significantly that that's undeniable so that's very interesting to to keep those uh, uh, nfts in mind
0: hmm. H- have you, have you purchased any uh, nfts
1: i have actually yes i purchased one nft and uh, it was a whole uh, it was just very uh, Interesting to, to 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 see the whole process of buying an NFT. So having to have a wallet and then just to, to make the offer and then see the, the whole uh, smart contracts behind it and everything else. It was very interesting to see. Uh, what also was interesting that a week after I purchased my first NFT, somebody offered me double for what I have purchased it for. So in one week I could have, doubled my money already which is quite uh uh, i thought was quite shocking um to see what was also shocking about the nfts purchasing was the gas fees so i think most of your listeners will know what gas fees are so with, with nfts it's basically just the transactional fees that are being used for for purchasing nfts but also for minting them uh those gas fees add it up very very quickly and it also depends on on the time that you do it so it's it's uh that was a bit of a shock to me that they're quite high
0: yeah i mean they're very dynamic right so you, you sure. really don't know what what the gas fee is until yes you to actually yeah. have to pay for it exactly yeah yeah no i
1: did not know it was that uh, significant actually
0: yeah 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 i've heard people it sort of trying to time because it depends on the time zones and Uh, how busy Mm. it is basically on the internet, uh, what what those um, gas fees are. Yeah. Yeah. So now, well, interesting that you've purchased a few NFTs. Um, Is that something that that, that you think, uh, have you helped anyone so far with the NFTs or is that just a a personal interest that you have?
1: No, definitely personal, but uh, also, of course, from a, a... from a uh, yeah professional point of view, uh, yes, we have uh, my company has clients who are purchasers of NFTs, who are also who are minters, who are making NFTs, uh, artists that are interested in in, in 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 turning their art into an NFT. But also, I, I came across this uh, nice gentleman who was a uh, furniture designer, so he wanted to basically make his designs for furniture into an, an nft so he can sell it uh, in the metaverse so in the whole digital metaverse so i thought that was also a very interesting angle and uh, of course that that is something that that is yeah we'll have to see how that will pan out but uh, the, the 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 hopes are quite high he made a design of a furniture let's say a chair And the chair, you, uh, as the author, the designer, he holds the copyright to it, right? So what he is doing is making that into an NFT, making it a digital version of that chair that he designed. And then he owns the NFT to that design. And then he can sell it to uh, people who want to sit on a on a nice chair in the metaverse for example so that's that's really something that is of course still very abstract everything but according to well of course mark zuckerberg uh, should be reality very uh, very soon i hope yeah. not by the way because it's it's kind of uh, uh, i hope that we can still see each other in, in real life and not just in the metaverse uh,
0: to be honest mm. no, so what I understood was that he was actually selling the the, the drawings right um, yeah so but he actually so he created a virtual version or- no he
1: wanted to he wanted to okay so this is now uh, in planning mode and and then we can uh, so he asked me for for some legal advice on how to do that and everything so that was uh, I thought very interesting.
0: Final question for you, you know, uh, since the, the title uh, and of this um, podcast is called Last Supper, yeah, I'm gonna ask you um, about your last meal that you hypothetically would have, right? So, if you would have a final meal with uh, someone in the art world, who would that be? Mm-hmm.
1: So one of I, I like abstract figurative uh, work, and especially with portraitures. So one of my favorite artists is is, is Francis Bacon, and uh, so I thought his life was also very interesting. So I wouldn't mind uh, sitting down uh, with him uh, for a meal and, uh, and 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 basically ask him about about his life and and how he. Went about uh, also relationship with other people and of course his friend Lucian Freud and and everything. So I think that will be a very interesting, a very interesting evening. I don't know if we're gonna eat much because of course we'll be mostly drinking, uh, <laughs> but uh, I think it will be very interesting.
0: What attracts you about about his his work of Francis Bacon?
1: Yeah. So okay, this is very personal, <laughs> but. Uh, uh, he had a very troubled uh, youth, and very his mind was quite troubled. Of course, he had a very traumatic relationship with his father, uh, and and uh, of course is very yeah like a lot of artists are have a troubled mind. And I I am always interested in people who have. Had that and, and and were able to put that on, on paper uh, to 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 make something that is, yeah, uh, very personable to them. But uh, yeah, just very emotional and 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 just uh, uh, it touched. It, it's, it's touching me the, the, these these types of artwork, especially because I have the opposite. So I I I uh, I'm intrigued by these types of uh, artists.
0: If people want to reach out to you, how do they get in touch with you?
1: Okay, well, they can uh, go uh, online to the website, uh, which is artlawservices.com. They can reach me on LinkedIn. They can reach me at uh, Instagram as well, Facebook. We're in the, most of the socials. Um, but uh, just
0: dropping me an email is, is usually the easiest. Thanks a lot, Lawrence, and, um, for your time. And uh, yeah, hopefully um, all, all, when restrictions are gone in Hong Kong, we can travel again and we can see each other again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. For more information about Lawrence Castelline Art Law Services, please visit their website on www.artlawservices.com. That's it for this episode of The Last Supper, and thank you for listening. Please consider to like and to follow this podcast. Can see my latest work and updates on Instagram and Twitter as well. This podcast was produced and hosted by Oscar Venhuis.